Yo. Hello, Brandon. Hello, Tom. So, in full disclosure, you are suffering from an injury currently. So, if you sound a little under the weather for the listeners, this is why. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm recovering. But, uh, yeah, uh, today's been, like, uh, a lot better than the Very last good. few. So, yeah, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay, actually. I got up in the attic, so video footage will be coming. I listened to some of the audio, and it very much sounded like Darth Vader, so I'm going to have to do a voiceover. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, as predicted. I mean, the breathing apparatus really is there. Although, recently, I heard there's a problem with serial killers in California, that there are just too many of them, and there's one serial killer who left a, a series of breathy voice recordings for, I don't know, just to mock his victims basically so now when i hear that breathing i don't think darth vader anymore i think golden state killer oh, but, uh, it's I, have quite this, <laughs> I have the same uh, uh mask you got i'm sure a lot of people do but when yes. you sent me that picture i was like oh yes actually i've gone through so many of those but uh <laughs> i don't know some get probably a lot more worn out than they should yeah people started sending me photos of them wearing the mask as well so i sent you a follow-up email of a couple of those photos yeah, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I love it. Getting those addicts. <laughs> oh, yeah. So to paint a picture for our listeners, we haven't been able to record for a couple of weeks now. And one of those weeks, I went to Southern California with my wife. And I went to Disneyland, of all places. Third time I've been there. The second time I was there, I proposed to my wife, actually. So it has a certain, well, it was our 15th wedding anniversary. So we decided to go back. Oh, that's awesome. My wife was doing her souvenir shopping. And I saw something and immediately thought, this is an attic aficionado's gift for two and a half reasons. I'll allow you to unwrap said box now. Okay. Here we go. All right. This this is like the best part. Uh, all right. So I don't have to go up in my attic first off to get something cool down. Very and good. Uh, I got the tiniest knife. The wood handle is bigger than the blade. It's like an inch big wood 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 handle perfect for cutting in the attic boxes but thomas sent me a uh just to give you the size of the box it's a i don't know about 14 inches by 14 inches white flat rate box and let's dig into this sucker (laughs) i'm worthless right now man it's brutal all right let's scoop this up i love the bubble wrapping you know it's good stuff we got my Tomcat has sent me a cup. Look at this. Look at this bag. Is this a current bag, Tom? It's, it's a current Disney Disneyland bag. Okay. <laughs> it looks like a retro bag. That's what they do. Yeah. Uh, okay. I got a Walt Disney bag on the outside. It's got the whole big. I've never been to Disney World or Disneyland either, or I haven't even been close to them. So I have no idea what's actually there. But uh, yeah, it looks like that magic castle on the front. Oh, dude. <laughs> oh, dude. Oh, A-T-S-T. <laughs> yeah, somebody out there is like, what? Yeah. Uh, all right, Thomas. Thank you. This is beyond generous. This is awesome. Give, give the full description. Give the full oh. description for our listening audience. Oh, I'm, I'm going to. I'm just taking it all in. All right, so Tom has sent me the uh, ages 8 to 14, which I like quadruple, but uh, it is the Star Wars Lego ATST Walker. 
man, those, there's three drivers that come with this. Three dudes. Oh, my God. I can't believe it comes with three figures. Oh, dude. This is awesome. It's got a nice action scene on the front, and this thing is – oh, man. If you don't know what the ATST Walker is, well, I'm sure you already do. But it's like the – I always called it like the uh, the, the half of AT-AT from Star Wars. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so it's like it's like a half a hat. It's like they cut it in half, and the head of the chicken went running around and ended yeah. up in uh, Return of the Jedi. Dude, this is awesome. Thank you, Tom. So obviously, two ticks associated with firstly walking Star Wars and Lego. The half a tick was I picked it up. I took it to the counter. I thought it's got to be a hundred bucks. Uh, yeah, hundred and twenty bucks. It was thirty eight dollars including tax. So I thought this is a unicorn thing. This is like Lego that is, well, I mean, relatively speaking, remarkably well-priced. It's like a unicorn gift. Dude, that is an expensive Lego. 38, you know, when like, when you look at the ages on there, 8 to 14, that's like a kid that can afford it himself. Well, California kids are different kids, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, all right, fair enough. Like, if a burger's $25, you're, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, dude, this is awesome. I haven't opened a new Lego in probably 30 years. Inhale deeply. Oh, oh, I will, dude. Look at this. Uh, Look at the booklet in here. This is awesome. Dude, I am going to build this thing and then blow it apart and then build it again. Very good. Oh, thank you, sir. Not at Excellent. all. Not at Excellent. all. Now, as my wife was off buying souvenirs, I sat pathetically as I usually did, doing uh, some Disney Square thing. In fact, I think it's the new Lego, not the Lego, the Star Wars end of Disneyland. But, uh, yes. Uh, it's awesome. Dude, I haven't had Legos in forever. I actually kind of like rebelled against Legos because they're so expensive. I but secretly, I'm like, oh, Legos. I understood that that was <laughs> So we have a bunch of listener feedback as well. Ah, okay, go for it. Should we go through that? Yeah, let's see it. Okay. So Mary Schaus, who turns out to be my sister-in-law as well, emailed me and said, just finished listening to the first two episodes of Attic Aficionados, and I really like it. I feel more chemistry with you and Brandon. I find the topics more interesting. To me, at about an hour each, it was easy to listen to this morning and again this afternoon. Great job. Now, our mutual friend Art Webb recommends Dark Star, which is HR Giga's World, which is available on Netflix and a variety of other locations, if you're interested in the guy who created all the artistry for Aliens. Ron Kleiss says, really enjoying this podcast, thanks. We got a bunch of new listeners that uh, made some commentary. Adam Sarsky, I've got to say. So he says, so I've listened to all four podcasts so far, and I love them. It's great to hear about your love for collecting things and hobbies, I collect Japanese and Japanese-inspired vinyl figures, Bounty Hunter, Kid Robot, and stuff like that. There is also a line of Japanese Star Wars figures that have been out for a while, and some new ones are still rolling out. They are samurai depictions of the different ah, units. That's awesome. There stuff. is a, um, yeah. not to cut you off, but there that's is cool. like a, uh, I'm a big fan of Shogun Warriors, mm-hmm. like the 24-inch ones, and... um there's like a Boba Fett they came out with a couple years back, maybe even longer than that. But it's like it's got, you know it's got like the the big 
I call it the bell bottom shoes, Mm -hmm. but it is, I don't know. I've never seen it in stores or at any convention, but I've seen pictures of it online. But yeah, some of that Japanese stuff is awesome. I'd love to have like a samurai Boba Fett or samurai Mm -hmm. like Hoth Stormtrooper, dude. Well, this is exactly what he's talking about. He says there are samurai depictions of the different units, stuff like Darth Vader as a samurai general, stormtroopers as samurai archers, other and odds and ends, including concert stuff, guitar picks, autographs, Rubik's Cubes and other puzzles like that. Uh, Keep up the good podcast, guys. Adam Sasky. I'm cutting you off again. Rubik's Cube. How about Rubik's Magic? Do you remember that? Oh, my goodness. Dude, let me just tell you. There's <laughs> a Rubik. There was a dollar store when they first came around here, which blew my mind to begin with because, mm. you know, I love a dollar store. But Rubik's Magics were in them for some reason. Mm-hmm. And this is like I was still pretty young and I would go up and buy them. And man, I would just use them to build forts for the G.I. Joes. <laughs> I wouldn't even like play them because they could bend up, you know, and they'd make like cool portals and then they'd collapse. But yeah, I never see Rubik's Magics like anywhere. And no one I ever talked to is like, mm, I have no idea what that is, you know. But yeah, I'm glad you know what they are. When They're that awesome. came out, it's, it has like fishing wire over plastic <laughs> things, right? I mean, that's basically yeah. the dynamic. Yeah, it's, it's so like cool. Fishing wire that crosses flat things and then you flip it around a few times and you connect up various bits and pieces. Yeah. When they first came out in Australia. This is the theme here. They were astronomically expensive, and I just made my own out of cardboard because I thought this is like he really. So I had a series of like strange folding puzzles made out of cardboard. I think probably the most eclectic I did was I put skewers, um, like I don't know what you'd put kebabs on, basically like kebab meat, stick them through corrugated cardboard so they'd turn in strange ways. I couldn't do the, you know, the actual fishing line stuff was too complicated. But yeah, well, after uh, Rub- they were called Rubik's Magic Puzzles, right, or something like that. Yeah, yep, yeah, 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 exactly. I uh, if you would have told me that there was a guy out there who made his own Rubik's Magic out of cardboard, I would have searched the lands for you. <laughs> it's mysterious that we've cosmically <laughs> collided in this very podcast, actually. <laughs> so no one ever talks about that. Yeah. Oh man. Of course, I called them Barbelay Magic Puzzles, and I took a few of them to school. <laughs> And my friends gave very, very critical reviews oh, of these sure. strange cardboard things that didn't quite work. The first ones I made were just folding ones where you had to fold it in an obscure way and a few different angles. And then you got strange eclectic shapes with lines and things. But yeah, it was, um, I don't know. It was probably about three months <laughs> and then all of them were broken and this kind of stuff. So Yeah, they always got like tangled up or broken. But yeah, ah, oh, dude, those are awesome. Yes. Amber Watson, who is the Brothers Webb's niece, also is a new listener, and she sends her regards. So I don't know if oh, you know Amber Watson. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, Rake and uh, Ted's Ted's niece. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I played some jokes on her and her, and her brother. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she is a new yes. listener as well. <clears throat> so in terms of the important topics that we are going to cover, one of my favorites was what's your favorite color? I knew you'd like that. I was like, let me get in Tom's head here for a second. (laughs) So why don't you begin? What's your favorite color? Green. I'm done. Interesting. (laughs) Mine used to be red, but it's now green. Uh So I thought for a period of time, as as you do as a boy, your favorite color is a very important thing, right? In fact, at some time, probably somewhere in the first year of grade school, your favorite color is like the most important thing ever, right? Oh, yeah. Divides up the playground, basically. 
<laughs> yeah, so to speak. But as I got older, I think it's interesting because being married, you know, when we first started dating, we did all this stuff like favourite season, favourite colour. And then about three or four years ago, my wife decided to re-quiz me and was very disturbed that all my answers had changed over the period of time that I've been married to her. <laughs> but yeah, I just can't find enough cool red stuff. I know we have listeners that are, you know, fixated with red cars and things like that. But for me, I just came to a point in my life where I was like, most of my hobbies that I enjoy have something green related in them. Like, for example, I like the orcs, or I like gardening and growing chilies and things like that. Like chilies tend to turn red or purple or what have you. But yeah, just by force of interest, green became my favorite color. Yeah, I uh, I liked orange too. It was mm. always a toss-up. But um, yeah, I don't know. Green, I don't even wear much green, but I just always, you know, when you walk by that whole wall of uh, paint swatches in Home Depot, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I guess the first one I pick out is green. <laughs> yeah. So one of the topics that you mentioned, which I found fascinating because it's a thing that I've fixated on for periods of time is associated with building forts oh yeah and this seems to be a recurring topic as well the thing i like about forts is the idea of narrative like you've got basically some storyline you've either got some group that's trying to get into a fort or some group that's trying to create a fort or you know forts always are really just like a physical representation of a story does that make sense yeah oh yeah totally Almost, uh, it's almost better than the story sometimes. I would build forts and then by the time I got it all done, I'd say, oh, the story's not going to be so exciting, but it was awesome building the fort. I think I'll leave it up for a couple of days. How about you? Well, I, I don't know how this happened, but about four or five, my, my most viewed video on YouTube, this is a video that I put onto YouTube, was a bunker system and probably about 10, no, it's 12 years. I know when it was. It was about 13 years ago now through Toy Soldiers. I found this guy on eBay who sold small bunkers and they fascinated me because they're like the ultimate representations of forts. So we were moving to the US. I had a little bit of loose change that we weren't using to send all our stuff here. And I contacted the guy. He's a Canadian guy. And I said, can you make me a three level bunker? And he did. And it's pretty elaborate. Like it's got kind of like dungeon, the dungeon level. Then it's got the first tier that looks out over the kind of battlefield. And then it's got the top kind of crow's nest level. And he sent it to me and I had it in a box, a huge box. I mean, it's a big bunker for about three, four years. And I thought, well, I've just got this box and I know there's a bunker inside. So I did an unboxing video and I filmed it and put it on YouTube. And it's had something like 120,000 views. I mean, clearly (laughs) we are not alone here, Brandon. Clearly there is a substantial group of folk that love forts in some fundamental sense. Bonkers are extensions of forts, I guess. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, uh, when I was a kid, my brother would babysit for me and these, these two friends of mine and then the parents would go away and, uh, they actually both my brothers would do it, but they would they would flip the couches over when the mm. parents were gone and kind of turn all the furniture on its back and then get blankets and put it over everything. And we would have these awesome forts. And I was like, I think that's probably the start of like fort building for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, totally. And I think the First World War is an interesting conflict psychologically. I mean, there's lots of movies made about the Second World War and all this kind of stuff. But the 
trench warfare of the First World War and psychologically what it did to people, I think I've always found fascinating. And as a child, it was predominantly blocks, but a topic that I put down because we talked about sea glass. In fact, I tried to find some sea glass when I was up in the attic. Failed dismally. I found some seashells, but not some sea glass. (laughs) Was associated with building sand forts at the beach, which was a large part when I'd go to the beach, even up into my probably early to mid-teens. There were two games to play. The first was, and I had younger brothers, so I would build pools for them, but they were effectively forts that the sea would come into. And as the tide went out, you'd be racing against time to create these pools, which were effectively forts. But then when the tide came back in, you were trying to maintain these pools without the tide actually destroying the pools in sand form. Did you ever do this? Yeah, oh, totally. I, uh, you know what's funny? It's... <laughs> Got to come like sort of full circle here. The whole reason I think we're even doing the podcast is partially related to forts in the sense that um, I reached out to our friend Art and he had been mentioning Dungeons and Dragons and I uh, I, and playing with you. And I said, um, oh, I I came across these figures I had, which I had told you about before. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, oh, I'd love to hop on. He made it seem like you had a, a podcast about playing dungeons and dragons and i said oh i'd hop on sometime and and just you know maybe send some pictures and then so we talked and then we ended up doing this but it i those those dungeons and dragons figures were primarily they occupied the fort because they didn't have moving pieces so Mm. they wouldn't fill with sand but i constantly would i would build forts the same thing you got to stop the tide from coming in and it was so annoying to have like you know, you get to the beach and, and when you're younger, at least I didn't realize it. I'd be like, ah, oh, man, I built all this and the tide's going out. I guess I got to go swim for a couple hours and come back later, yeah. you know, till the, till the action starts. But later, um, I still built stuff down there, you know, and, uh, I started, I would make like forts, but then I would bring Cheerios out and I would put Cheerios and leave some of the figures and I would kind of scatter around and back up. And instead of letting the ocean come in and which it would do, but, uh, sort of like late in the day when there wasn't many people around, the, the gulls would come and uh. they'll attack the figures and it is awesome. Uh. I mean, they will ravage it. So I had like walls with, I got a lot of photos of it. I got a lot of video of it too. But yes, beach forts are like, they're the, they're the, <laughs> the pinnacle of fort awesomeness. Yes. It's interesting because certainly for me, sometimes it was a solo game and sometimes I'd get other people involved. I mean, the best forts were ones where you would get, gather other kids and you'd have other kids. And there was always like one kid that would just kick something over or something like that. But most of the kids would competitively build up their various sections. And you could also, if you were playing the pool game, you could agree to connect up to another kid's set of pools and either give them water or they'd give you water or things like that. So it's interesting because I think it's, I mean, certainly we come from different parts of Right. But this game seems to be like universally understood amongst kids that given a beach, given some water, obviously there are going to be the, the surfers and the sunbathers. But for the rest of us, in particular, those of us with a kind of imaginative engineering bent, there's going to be building forts. Oh, big time. You know, uh, it's funny. I, I went to the beach. This is probably 10 years ago with a friend of mine, a bunch of friends, and we're on the beach. And this is the Jersey Beach. And this is a guy that grew up with me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I had been to the beach before. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to dig like a huge hole. 
and I'm going to dig down the water. And he starts laughing. And I said, and, and I go, what? And he goes, what are you kidding? You can't dig the water. What are you talking about? And I said, yeah, you dig down like two, three feet and there's water. And, uh, <laughs> and this is, you know, back from the ocean a bit. And he had no idea that that was there. And I said, this is how like all the, all the figures in the forts when you're, when your parents put you way back, you know, closer to the dunes, you, you got to dig deep to get a water supply or else you're going to walk all the way to the ocean. He's like, looked at me like I was crazy. I said, hey, dude, you never, you never built a fort before, man. <laughs> it is funny actually, because that's a phenomenon as well, that if you can't capture the water, you just dig deeper and eventually you'll hit the water level. Oh, that's yeah. great. Pretty yeah. The, cool. beach, the beach has got that, uh, you know, clean slate thing about it. And then it's cool. I always liked like, you know, you'd show up the next day at the beach and then you would see like, you know, the remains of, of forts oh, yeah. from the day before. And I oh, love yeah. that. I think that was so cool. You're like, oh, let's rebuild these ruins. I mean, sometimes they were like the, um, what they call the crop circles in the UK where they say, oh, it's aliens coming down. No, it's really drunk locals that go out in the night and make the circles. Yeah. And what happens is that the forts, I guess when the tide comes through, the outlying structure kind of smears down. You get almost like a Gaussian blur over the fort if you've built a, like a large enough one. Because even the sea coming over it, like eventually it'll just break over it. But when the water, I guess there's still some sand movement, but sometimes you can come back the next day and you'll actually still see the outline of your fort. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it looks like. And oh. I guess the underlying thing with forts and you know, building, be it in sand or be it in, in a non-beach-related form, is the idea of creating worlds around this kind of narrative worlds, which I guess you get with figures and these kind of things as well. I mean, most of the time when I was building forts at the beach, it was associated with the water either being a friend or an enemy, typically. So you had this additional thing there. But when you talked about building forts for for figures and for narrative and for blowing things up and for this kind of stuff. I mean, what's your thought process associated with building a fort with a narrative behind it? I don't know. I, I guess it's always just a storyline that, you know, I, I, it depends where I am. I, mm. I really like building forts out, outside mm -hmm. a lot of the times, but I had sort of like this huge set of blocks and I would come up with these stories and um, it depended on if, you know, was all the G.I. Joes and Star Wars, they worked well together. So they were always like um, sort of battling. And then if, mm -hmm. if I allowed some of the He-Men to come in who are like <laughs> big destroyers, you know, yeah. it's sort of storyline change. But uh, I guess it all depended on where where they where I was going to play with them. I liked I like outside because it's it's funny if, if you if you take your, your figures to like a creek or you just dig a hole in the yard or wherever it sort of fits like no matter how big the creek is or how big the blades of grass are, it still looks like, like to scale in a sense sometimes. Certainly. Certainly. So many weeks ago, I think probably three weeks ago, you suggested KitchenAid attachments as a top. Oh yeah. Oh yes, I did. <laughs> oh yes, Tomcat. I did. And I know you'd eat that up. No pun intended. Believe and I, me. I, yes. And you, I go first. you go first. <laughs> Uh, lay it on me, baby. Lay oh, it on me. Well, okay. okay. No, should I go okay. first or will you go first? No, gotta... okay. Okay. I'm just going to say what I need. Very good. I need, I need to know. Oh, oh man. I'm... <laughs> I feel like I'm 14 and I called a radio station. I can't, I'm too nervous because I got through. Uh, I, the, uh, the grinder. 
Mm. I, I got a KitchenAid a few mm-hmm. years back, and I want to be able to put um, corn, just dried corn, Ooh. through it and grind it up mm-hmm. and make, like, cornmeal. Mm-hmm. What do I need? So there's something – the difficulty – well, if it's dried corn, there's a processor thing which basically will take – I think we'll take meat and a variety of other things, and we'll also, I think, take corn and make it into cornmeal. I'm pretty sure there are two. There are two things. There's a flat, almost like I don't know. It's, they're both funnel-like things, but one of them. I mean, you've seen, you've obviously seen I've the seen... sausage-making machine. You know what that yeah. looks like. Yeah. So there's something like that, and there's another one that has like rotating discs where it's flat, and I think you could use that to grind depending on the quality of the corn. But the other one, the one, the sausage making one, I'm pretty sure it has, you can have two blades on that one and a flat piece. And I think under pressure it could grind. I'm pretty sure. Is that what I would do to make cornmeal? My, my wife, look, to be honest here, I am not the KitchenAid aficionado. My wife is. In fact, for folks listening in who are not familiar with this thing, KitchenAid describes the mechanical thing of which you attach a number of other things to, be it a pasta maker or a sausage maker or various kinds of beating whisk instruments and various other stuff. So we originally had a standard normal KitchenAid. I don't think my wife broke it, but I think we realised it was just grossly underpowered for the number of attachments and things we wanted to do, primarily her. So we then got the large industrial size, like the largest KitchenAid thing that they make, which is silver and big and sits proudly, not even in a shelf in the kitchen, but in its own special pantry area, surrounded with all the other KitchenAid (laughs) things. It does sit proudly. That thing sits so proud. It's like, up yours, microwave. Exactly. (laughs) not Not only does it have a throne and a shrine, it has all its cohorts around it in large Tupperware containers because that apparently is the way that these things should be stored. <laughs> but I'm embarrassed to say, actually, it was three weeks ago that we were recording and my wife made pasta with the KitchenAid. I had bought her the pasta attachment two years previously, and this was the first time that she actually broke it out and used it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, that's awesome. I... um. I was going to ask you about the pasta, mm. the pasta attachment too. If anyone out there gets a KitchenAid, I got one and when I made like four batches of Patels mm. and I didn't know yet. I, I washed the bowl out with water, but there's some kind of metal polish they put mm. on it and you got to, I guess you got to wash it with soap. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought I washed it with soap, but so I get this, I get, I would have eaten it if the uh, Patel batter wasn't so light, but as I'm scooping it off, it looks like they're silver. And it is like a, it's got like a metallic to it. And mm. then, so I, I called KitchenAid and I said, my bowl's falling apart. Like, what's, what is this? And they were like, no, it's a polish. It's not toxic. But I had no idea what it was, but I did waste four batches of Patels. If anybody out there gets one, just a heads up. But I really, yeah, I wanted to know that grinder thing. And, um, also I got the ice cream attachment about mm. t- 10 years prior. Yeah to getting a KitchenAid. Someone <laughs> thought that that was the whole thing. It Standalone. <laughs> yeah. Was no. I said, this has to go back. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm probably getting it completely wrong. What I might do is I might consult with my local expert and off the podcast, I'll get back to you the exact answer 
associated with what to make cornmeal out of. But there's one that has a cork. I mean, I think the sausage maker has like a corkscrew part that then forces the stuff up against the blades. And I'm pretty sure you could do. I mean, it depends on the density of the corn in its dried form, I think. But no yeah. doubt we have it. I'll, I'll take a photograph. I'll talk to my professional and uh, I'll, I'll get back to you shortly on that one, Brandon. Okay. I was wondering, like, you know, could you grind up peanut peanuts and make peanut butter? Certainly. You, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. that be all? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they make a, that thing is awesome. It is Love certainly, it. it's unstoppable. I mean, I, in terms of industrial equipment, KitchenAid makes an industrial, well, there are entry level stuff. My wife moved beyond, but when you get to the solid, bigger stuff, nothing can stop it. There's no, there's no, you know, batter that cannot be whisked to a perfect consistency. I mean, it's absolutely the bread dough makers. Have you seen those? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> it is, dude, it's awesome. It's yeah. crazy how close the, the beater gets to the bottom. It's yeah. like you can put a, a slice of paper in there and maybe it'll fit. I'm like, oh, look at it. It's so well, awesome. Some of, some of them actually have rubberized sides to actually like literally scrape the bottom as well. We've got, we've got attachments that have rubberized sides. I'm not sure. I'm sure that it's for like some kind of icing or something like that where it needs to not only like beat it, but also scrape it as well. See, you were being modest. I knew you were the. KitchenAid aficionado as well. <laughs> I just had to drag it out of you. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. I mean, I'm certainly the consumer of many KitchenAid created products. So let's just put it that way. <laughs> it's so awesome. Yeah, I, did, I, I would like to get the glass bowl. That's oh, what I, yeah. Yes. I, wanted to, I wanted to get the glass bowl so I could just. I, I heard you can't stick the metal one in the dishwasher. That's my only. No, my wife has a series of rituals associated with various things. And I don't know. I mean, I came to dating my wife thinking that I could cook. I came to dating my wife having cooked for my family for probably seven, eight years. And then for myself for probably about four or five years. And when I first started dating my wife, I was sick. I was really, I had the flu or something. I was really like deathly sick. And proceeded to get her deathly sick as well. But she came to visit me and I said, well, I'll make dinner for you. And I made her, I don't know, I mean, it's a tomato-based pasta sauce from canned tomatoes that I cut up. And I did the garlic and the olive oil and I had some Italian sausage that I broke up and, you know, some pepper flakes and things. I mean, I thought I did it okay. She didn't like it. She told me (laughs) never to cook for her again. Oh, my God, really? 16 years later i cook for her when she's sick but it's a it's an unwritten thing in our house that i am not to do things in the kitchen and she will do and it's cultural as well i mean i think certainly i actually could make a good breakfast i had a few standards and breakfast was one of my standards but an american breakfast is a very specific thing it has very specific orders and i actually introduced my wife to cooking hash browns, though. But, you know, there are things that I just, you know, I've survived on my own cooking, but it's just not compatible with my wife. <laughs> That's too bad. Oh. <laughs> but she does go away occasionally, and she does get sick occasionally. And when she gets sick, I can pull out things that I, I, li- I like cooking roasts. Anything with roast vegetables, this kind of stuff I like cooking. I like cooking soups. I do a lot of soups while she's sick. So when she gets sick, I'm just like, ah, finally, 
I can cook it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me at it. Where's that yes. KitchenAid? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm never great. allowed to touch the KitchenAid. I mean, there are there are rules in this relationship. And the KitchenAid is. I'm allowed to occasionally lick a beater and do things like that, but really, like running the KitchenAid. And I mean, historically, I used to make pasta by hand in Australia. In fact, I used yeah. to do pasta parties because it's actually really easy to make pasta. And it's actually quite fun because your friends make you know, various sauces or your friends help with the rolling out and the cutting and all this kind of stuff. So I used to make pasta back in the day. But, you know, without a machine to do it, my wife would just look at this thing and think, yeah. And I should point out as well, my wife is a professional. In Vegas, and this is a moderately funny set of stories, she was a cake decorator for the rich and famous in Vegas. And I oh. delivered the cakes on the weekends for her. That was my contribution. That's awesome. And we gated communities in Vegas. There's serious money in Vegas. They have like two layers of security guards. The first security guards at the first gate have revolvers and pistols. And the second security set of security guards at the second gate have like submachine guns. <laughs> so you go into these gated communities and one of them, she did, a, I mean, they're all like, amazingly elaborate detailed cakes like nothing you'd see on the food network just like extreme things my wife made a five foot tall shoe like a i don't know what they call them like a stiletto shoe like a high heel shoe in cake form and the worst one however was she agreed she did wedding cakes as well she did a wedding cake for two middle-aged kind of gangsterish folk and they had all the combined kind of Brady Bunch kids. One of the eldest son had just gotten out of jail and he was there talking, you know. So we arrived at this house. These houses typically are just huge. I mean, some of them are sprawling. Some of them have like garden boat houses. And then you go through the first set of doors, and then the second set of doors. So we went into this one and they insisted. And this is a large, probably 17 inches. And it's beach themed, funnily enough. And it has cream frosting. And they, and this is Vegas in early summer. So it's like 110 in the shade. And they insisted that the cake had to be out of the house for an hour and a half. So we had like fans and stuff set up and the cake basically melted and they were threatening to sue and all this other nonsense. <laughs> but uh, one of my favorites was we turned up and this was a children's birthday party where we had, I don't know, a hundred specially made <laughs> cupcakes. And we walked through a series of gates and then we got to this, the back of the house and we were in the kitchen looking out over a national park. Their back garden was a national park, quite literally. You couldn't see the edge of it. It was all this kind of stuff. And the, the woman of the house came up to me as they do. And I said to her, they always chintz you in the backyards in Vegas. It's just amazing how they chintz you. And she looked at me. She said, what? I said, they always rip you off with these backyards in Vegas. She looked at me again and she said, what? And I thought, I'm not going to repeat this a third time for this one. <laughs> but I always had a lot of fun. Like, I always basically played the fact that these were, like, snooty, uber-rich. And you've got to play with these people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, my wife is a professional. But we came to an agreement. I think after the mafioso couple, I can't think. I think the mafioso couple... The problem was that she also developed a reputation where, and none of them tipped. Like, these are cakes that take, I don't know, uh, some of them take 120 or more hours to make. And this is 120 hours over a two-week, maybe a one-week period in some time. My wife is literally getting no sleep working on these cakes. And 
they never tip. And they try to get the lowest possible price in all circumstances. <laughs> so after a few of these, and particularly with the hostile stuff where they just, they have no idea that this thing is a food item that will be damaged by heat. I think, yeah, by the time we came here, the professional cake, and she's been into a few cake shops here, and she taught it as well. But, uh, yeah, I think the, the cake decorating game is a younger person's game, and usually probably if you're going to deliver cakes to wealthy communities, you should carry sidearms, I think. I think that needs to be <laughs> Do you carry it in the cake? That's an interesting point. I'm thinking, I'm thinking in the sock or probably in your back pocket in some yeah. way. My view is you need to have easy access to it, particularly if you're knocked over by a bunch of kids. I think the the nature is that when people get to a certain degree of wealth, everyone's the help. And everyone just needs to be treated as if they're, you know, completely and utterly incompetent. And the thing about my wife's cake decorating, which was amazing, is the level... I mean, she'd do, like, airbrush spray painting, a variety of different techniques. I mean, basically, she... For my 40th birthday, she painted five miniatures for me, five orcs, five space orcs. And she already had all these skills from cake decorating. She built a bunch of model rail structures for me. Now, model rail structures, when they're built by the model rail community, they take them, some of them take months to build. And my wife just tacked them together. She built a structure that would normally take a standard model railroad maybe six days to build in about 45 minutes. She just tacked the glue together. It all set perfectly came in, did the painting. I mean, in terms of, like, artisanal skill associated with this thing, independently designing cakes, she's picked up a lot of skills that are useful for a variety of other things. Dude, that's awesome. She'd be a great fort builder. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And, and imagine that. You could, like, have your, filts board, your forts built for you and have, like, a delicious Italian rum cake waiting mm. in between battles. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. So five years ago, no, more than that, probably, I went back to South Australia, to Adelaide, spent it with my cousins and folks there. I love Adelaide. This you time need of to year. visit Adelaide. You need to visit Adelaide. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, and like the cousins were doing, what are they called? What are they called? Like gingerbread cakes, which I oh, think yeah. historically were done in, I don't know what time of year they do them here, but anyway. So they kind of put them together haphazard, you know, M and Australian equivalent of M and M's, this kind of stuff all put together. My wife made one and I brought it out. I had a few photos of it and it looks like a German fjord wandering down with little, you know, ice crystals and things like that. It's all decked out in snow, garden pathway, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it looks like it's, it should be in some like Disney movie or something like that. I mean, just an eye, an aesthetic eye. And I say this actually because she's supposed to be working on the logo for this very podcast, but has hit a few roadblocks. She liked your logo, actually. So we <laughs> might just end up using your logo. But um, to have a particular eye is an amazing thing. And I realize that uh, it's a skill that I'll never have. <laughs> <laughs> like the precision and the, the attention to detail. I, I didn't think that, that you were going there. <laughs> but I just... This is a skill of, I mean, I like engineering. I like putting stuff together, but I could never get to the level of depth where, uh, you know, where my wife has gone with cakes. I like that sweet little, uh, remix you put together. I was listening oh, yeah. to that. Oh, oh yeah. that sounds real good. 
That is 1989. And you know what's interesting about that album? It was produced by Jam Master J, the late Jam Master J. Rest in peace. And it sounds like the same period for Run DMC. But yeah, it's interesting, actually. I, I put in some of my favorite breaks. And one of my favorite breaks on the album is actually reversed, which I put into the thing as well. But uh, yeah, that was a one that I needed to put out there into the world. Oh, that that was oh, that was received love lovely. <laughs> I loved it, man. It was great. I was like, oh, I just want to put my corduroy pants on. Oh yeah, and just run up and down the stairs. This sounds excellent. Well, Cuba Gooding Senior. It starts off with uh, every a sample of Everybody Plays the Fool, and it's funny actually because Cuba Gooding Senior is obviously a performer that only a small portion of America knows about, right? I just got the sense through his death, through his strange death in a car in a liquor store parking lot, that only, and I felt the same, Billy Paul. Do you know Billy Paul? No. Billy Paul, I discovered Billy Paul in a record store in Penang, Malaysia. I bought a Public Enemies, uh, what is it called? You're going to get yours, I think, your 98 Oldsmobile which has Terminator X scratching on the on the B-side. And I also bought, bought a Billy Paul album. Billy Paul has a series of funk tracks, um, Brown Baby, uh, Me and Mrs. Jones. Me and Mrs. Jones is the one that he's most famous for. But he just has some like deep funk grooves and sampling him. And also when I used to DJ, I'd always bring Billy Paul when I was DJing with friends because just by looking at the record, you know this guy's going to be funky. Like he just has that appearance in his uh, in his eyes. So yeah, it's funny actually because I think through DJing I got a broader appreciation for a variety of different bits of music than most people would never have heard of. <laughs> anyway, so the album was called uh, I think it's self titled Seriously Fine, Seriously Fine. There's one Vimeo video clip. They there were two albums that I got in particular that were both stamped promotional copy only. The other, and I've got them in front of me, actually, is Too Deep, I Didn't Do My Homework, or it's called Honey, That's Showbiz. That is produced by Molly Moll. And Seriously Fine was produced by, like I said, Jam Master J. And they both stand alone. On the Too Deep album, there's a track called Simply Done, which I was telling you about, but we kind of lost the... the which is basically seven guys all rapping probably 16 or 32 bars apiece. And they're my favorite tracks on albums when they just get a bunch of their buddies together and they each have, you know, 32 bars to spit down on. Because there's always one guy on the album who's like noticeably better, but didn't get a record deal. And you're like, what's the yeah. story with that guy? Like he's got the right, he's got the flow, pitch perfect, um, too deep. What's the guy's name? Rob Well in the, um, simply done. And he just lays it down. And he's got like a voice and there's a sample called Motivated by the Thought of Rage, which I sampled and scratched over and used so many times. And he's just got this really gravelly voice and you would have thought, why did he not, like now, what is it, 27 years later, why did he not actually have a rap career? Are you familiar with these these? The track where they get a bunch of their buddies together. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's exactly right. There's always a guy, and, and I'll get you have to go back. And yeah, I mean, now it's always this artist featuring this, 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 mm -hmm. and this, yeah. this guy. But you know, 
years ago that they didn't always write who it was. And I'd be like, I have to listen and start asking around, like, who's that guy? He's like the fourth guy to rap mm. on this song, you know? And I'm like, oh, his voice is so good. And like, yeah. you never hear from him again. Yeah. Well, Seriously Fine didn't do well for a variety of reasons. A number of their tracks are actually genuinely curious and I don't know. They had a great producer, but they just didn't really get it together. They would, they didn't know whether they wanted to be NWA or Boys to Men, basically. And Too Deep had exactly the same problem. They didn't know where they fit in a musical genre and neither of them got past promotional records. So I found recently you can pick up both these records for like 25 to 50 cents through what's it called discog or something like that yeah um and i picked up because i used to, these are the two records that i scratched the most because no one had ever heard of them and they just had a series of really like i don't know i mean quintessential rap lines in a track where i could just pick it up scratch it put it back scratch it so my t- two original copies of these records long since destroyed like literally needle worn through in particular areas. But I now have what seven copies in front of me, which I picked up for 30 bucks, including postage. So eventually, eventually the time will come where everything that you once wanted will become cheap enough for you to own it once again. That's right. Maybe a Rubik's magic will. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually. <laughs> or I could probably get back into the business of making Barbelay magic puzzles and, uh, yeah. I, I smell a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, man. If only I was at the Adelaide playground when you were making those. I wasn't in Adelaide at the time. I was in Canberra. I, I was, I spent, I was born in Adelaide, spent about 18 months there, formative years. And then we moved to a place called Bathurst, which is in New South Wales. And we were in Bathurst for a few years, and then we ended up in Canberra, and it was Canberra until I was about, when did I leave Australia? I don't know, 2021? And yeah, it was Canberra all through that period of time. So it was somewhere in Canberra. It was an interesting period of time, actually. I did a lot of things in that period of kind of Barbelay magic puzzles. I had a game called Schmuck Quest. Three games, actually. Computer games. Text-based adventure games with graphics. It was based loosely on an alternative universe where the NWA characters were actually vegetables. And it was basically (laughs) a satire of American culture. And it had a series of manuals that came with it, the Schmuck Quest manuals, which I wrote together with a video game. I, I programmed it with a friend of mine. I didn't own a computer at the time. So this is another thing associated. I was driving, when we were driving into Disneyland, I had this, I went to LA when I was 13 and it was like a seminal period of my life. I I picked up these albums that I just mentioned. I did a variety of things there, only there for a month. I went to Disneyland with my father and stepmother at the time. And um, I also bought a floppy disk box that held five, three, three and a quarter, three and a half, three and a half inch disks. And this thing, I had a little thing cut out, which was the frequencies of the sounds, literally the the hertz of the sounds. And when I would go to my friend Darren's house and program these games, I'd have to write the music with the frequencies. So the Schmuckquest intro theme is a cross between Public Enemy's Contract on the World Love Jam, which you may or may not know. I think it's a seminal track, but it's... Uh, it's basically uh, a series of tones and then scratching over words. And 
the theme from Superman, which mysteriously mixes perfectly into this. So you combine <laughs> both these themes together. I think I have I have a later interpolation that I did that I can actually add to the end of this podcast, which is probably Violin and Public Enemies Contract on the World Love Jam. I don't think it's the theme from Superman, though. Anyway, Schmuck Quest started with this theme from Superman, Contract on the World Love Jam, and the guy is basically a loser in this huge city, and he starts off waking up in the morning and decides he doesn't want to go into work. Instead, he wants to go and hold up a bank. And he goes and he holds up the bank, but he's basically not got any of the artifacts that he needs to hold up the bank. So he's on the run from the police, and somehow he ends up on an island that was loosely modelled after Three Mile Island, which I know is relatively close to where you are. (laughs) And the the story is ongoing like that. And it it also has these, these strange vegetable gangster rappers that appear loosely in various parts of the story. So that's Schmuckquist one. He has to find the last great watchmaker. It's called Search for Clock, I think. Anyway, so that came out, and I wrote a manual which is about 50 pages of just, like, obscure humour, and uploaded it onto a friend of mine's bulletin board, which, you remember bulletin boards? Were you ever that nerdy into that stuff? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. So I uploaded it on the local bulletin board, which also happened to be my friend's (laughs) bulletin board, and this game took off over the precursor to the internet. And I knew I had made it because a fellow contacted my friend and said that his folk band would come and play at a party of my choice (laughs) after I created ShmuckQuest. So I had a group of friends that loved ShmuckQuest as a thing, and I had a group of friends that were just like, this thing is ridiculous. Like, it's just a bunch of losers. You're basically just ripping off American culture. It makes no sense. So... When we all turned 18 and some of us went to university and some of us didn't, a group of my friends moved to Perth, which is literally on the other side of Australia, and started doing a comic book, as you do. And the comic book was based on the Schmuck Quest manuals. But these were friends that were the ones that, ah, when we were 13, 14, doing the Schmuck Quest games, were like, oh, this sucks, this is stupid, Schmuck Quest. When they were 18, I guess the humour grew up, I don't know. They started mm-hmm. publishing these books, these comic books, graphic novels, that were based on the SchmuckQuest manuals, the original manuals for the game. So if anyone knows SchmuckQuest out there, it was very big in the bulletin board scene, and it had a kind of underground... Canberra is Washington, D.C. It's the Australian equivalent of Washington, D.C. It's the capital of Australia. So the only jobs in Canberra are government department jobs, like in Washington, D.C. And within the government departments, this is the toy soldier community as well, like the miniature community in Canberra. They were all like government employees, basically, when they were adults. And within that echelon of uber nerds, for a short period of time at least, like Schmuck Quest was a thing. Don't think for a second you're getting away without telling me which vegetables were the members of NWA. Oh. Uh. (laughs) Ice Cube was a tomato. (laughs) What kind of tomato? Like a really red, juicy one. Okay, not like a. Well, there. Yeah, not okay. A Roma, no, a beef heart. No, okay. Not a tomato. Beef a beef heart. heart. Okay. Not a Roma. Not a Roma. <laughs> uh, when was like a pickle? That's what I wanted to know most. Uh, How about yellow? Yellow. It's yellow. You forgot him, didn't you? No, no, the DJ. <laughs> you've got to appreciate the DJ is actually the most important thing. I think he <laughs> okay, might have good. actually been human. I think I was the DJ. I think that's the joke. 
that I'm actually the DJ in this universe. I'm pretty sure that's the joke. The SchmuckQuest manual, the original manual, was the NWA Straight Out of Compton album where they're all leaning over with yeah. the guns drawn, except it's me and all my buddies that worked on it and the guy who had the bulletin board and various other people in a stylized, Simpsonized cartoon fashion, all like leaning over. So, you know, the guy whose computer I programmed on was one of them. I was another one. Uh, my friend with a bullet board was another one. My, I don't know what one would call it now, like feral dreadlock friend was another one. And basically that was the, that was the original Schmuck Quest manual. The sequel was slightly more labored and the third one was very much like Godfather 3, like well forgotten. But it was an interesting <laughs> discipline because it took me about six months to actually write these games. And I literally, every day, go over to my friend's house and program to get the Schmuck Quest games out. And it was probably one of my early, like, long-term programming projects where I was utilising, you know, another person's computer and these kind of things. I have a few games. One of the ones that I feel most attached to happened when I was about 15. And I had bronchitis, really bad bronchitis. And every year, the year nine, the ninth graders went to Central Australia. It was a big thing. It was like a six, seven day trip. It was a big coming of age thing as well, because you all slept in tents. There were boys and girls, all this kind of standard stuff in ninth grade. And I was like deathly ill and literally went to the doctor the day before. And it must have been about, it was about $400. It was a really expensive trip, maybe about $300. I don't know. But my mother was just like, you're going. <laughs> <laughs> we paid the money, you're going. We're not going to get a refund. Get on the bus. So got on the bus and I started writing this code and I was really feverish at the time, but I started writing the code and I got more and more sick and I kept on writing this code. And eventually I was left in a hospital in the northern part of Southern Australia and my grandparents came and collected me the next day and I spent two weeks in your favourite place in the world, Adelaide, South Australia, ah. recuperating in my grandparents' like guest bedroom writing this code. And after about two weeks, I had, uh, it must have been at least 60 pages of code written. And I sent it to my friend, who funnily enough had the bulletin board, but his father programmed. So he and his father spent four days programming this code in to their PC. And it was a UFO simulation with like rolling, it was all vector graphics, but it was like, it's like a flight simulator, like rolling fields with these UFOs that fly over yeah. fields and it had water flowing through it and all this kind of stuff. And just on my code book, like I hadn't touched a computer, they had this thing. And my friend called me up after four days worth of coding. And he's like, this thing's amazing. Like, what, how did you like come this realization? I was just like, I don't know. It was just, I was feverish. <laughs> just, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> what happened? But That's that right. code was the basis of my, I read it when I was like 15, was the basis of the landscapes for my noble ape simulation oh, okay. which was 19 right. but that whole thing and i had i had a few strangely autistic friends at the time and i had one friend who made vr equipment and this is in the 90 91 there's a thing in vr which probably isn't even a thing anymore but back in the day there was a thing called a polymer coil and it's like this pyramid that you wind out of wire and it can sense the position that you are 
based on magnetic fields or something. I don't know how it works. Anyway, he made his own polymer coils. He ripped apart, like, black and white Game Boys and made, like, 3D glasses back before it was a thing. And he and I, um, I was very interested in the visuals, and he was more in the hardware, basically. But, yeah, it was just, a like, a golden opportunity to have just a few of these individuals around me at a particular time. And, you know, they're all, they all work for government departments now and stuff like that in Australia. They didn't, none of them left Australia. Well, some of them did for short periods of time, but they all ended up back in Australia. That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, and it all started with Adelaide, sort of. Well, passed through there. bronchitis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the funniest thing was the hospital that they left me in, like you have these images of what country hospitals are like. I mean, you get them in this country as well. I was watching, um, what was I watching? Hacksaw Ridge recently. And there's a scene in a hospital, there's a, a hospital out, I guess, in the south somewhere. And I was probably the only person in this hospital. I mean, there must have been like two nurses. There was a doctor who came every other day. But this was just a country hospital in the middle of nowhere. And my grandparents, it must have taken them about four hours to drive up. I remember, you know, they came and picked me up. And it was quite a sizable, you know, drive there, quite a sizable drive back. Um, anyway. Man, that's, uh, oh, yeah, I'd like to see that room. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it was like that in terms of that, you know, that kind of relatively simple hospital, relatively simple rooms. There's more glass in Hacksaw Ridge than there could have been in Australia. The Australian rooms were just bare. Um, but, yeah, very much kind of yellow, sandstone, this kind of stuff. Because yeah. it has to deal with the heat as well. That's the other thing. So when, you know, stupid colonialist folks go into these inhospitable environments and they're like, ah, oh, what we need to do is start making buildings like the south of Wales, you know. So <laughs> nothing <laughs> like that in the environment. And they just start making buildings like that. <laughs> okay, wait. What vegetables is he He was a Brussels sprout. Oh, he's so tall. Easy <laughs> Uh, yeah, the Brussels sprout's huge. How about Dr. Dre? Let me oh, guess. We, we had... Go for it. Broccoli. Very close. Oh. Green bean. <laughs> That's not that close. Well, it's <laughs> it's long and... I mean, it's... Oh, sorry, broccoli. I saw asparagus in my head, which he, he was initially an asparagus. Okay. And then he was a green bean. And I just assumed... I'm sorry, I've, I've been in my attic today. I've inhaled a large quantity of uh of dust so i, I yeah. may be in and out of cohesion even though i thought you'd be the one that would be medicated this evening i'm probably more <laughs> medicated in cement dust ways yeah i think so yeah yeah I'm a... <laughs> that's great okay so dre is a green bean mm-hmm. okay <laughs> that's great i guess brussels sprouts are well when you've got a tomato a green bean and a pickle the brussels sprout is still the smallest element right i guess it's smallest if you yeah if you uh, the green bean oh. i mean the green bean's thin but yes yeah yeah <laughs> oh um you said brussels sprout i'm thinking asparagus i'm sorry i was like it was asparagus <laughs> we both in my head. did it we both yeah. did it yeah <laughs> we both were thinking the wrong vegetables you see Dude. it's not just me <laughs> canned asparagus is i don't know why it exists so disgusting <sighs> it is a strange <sighs> I didn't understand asparagus until my wife said, you only eat the edible part. For my entire life, I've been eating the entire thing. Said, <laughs> oh, no. no. You just snap off. When, where it snaps is you eat 
from the spear down to where it snaps to. That's right. Yeah, a buddy of mine told me that. And back to your gingerbread house, I think we're past the time limit, but I got to embellish on this. A friend of mine ate like a four-year-old gingerbread house, you know, because you put it out at Christmas and then I would stick it in the attic in a bag Mm -hmm. and I would bring it down. And I had had some friends over and one of them, well, a bunch of them were partying, but they stayed up. And the next morning uh, he leaves and I get this note. Sorry, Bran. Sorry about your gingerbread house. I'll buy you another. (laughs) I see it's just all busted up. I figured he dropped it. And then, uh. So I talked to him and I, he said, yeah, dude, I was starving. <laughs> I said, dude, that thing is from like 2006. <laughs> yeah, he ate it. He said it tasted fine and he never had any issues. So I, think I don't know the what thing they're about made gingerbread of. is actually, I mean, a lot of times you get these gingerbread house kits that stay on the shelves for at least six months. Oh, yeah. Four years is a bit long, but yeah, I think what can go, well, what can go wrong with gingerbread? I'm sure there's a lot that can go wrong. <laughs> yeah. Bowling alleys and bowling. This was a topic you put down. Love them. They just closed one by me. This bowling oh, alley. Nice. Yeah, it's like they got these modern ones up. Well, they're not even modern. I don't know. They're just not your typical old <laughs> old style bowling alley. I don't even know how to describe it. But um, yeah, I don't know. I like the smell of the bowling alley. Mm. I don't know what it is. That's, that sounds disgusting. I mean, it's nothing but massively worn shoes by other people but mm. it does have it does have a nice smell <laughs> but yeah they just closed one down this they had this rule you could bring your own beer but it had to be in cans <laughs> so i wow. guess that like conducted the level of rowdiness that was going to go on there but yeah they and they had like a refrigerator just like a regular refrigerator in your kitchen and you could just walk up and put it in there it's hysterical mm. but um yeah how about you you like bowling so, I'm like a bowling savant. I don't, I didn't start bowling until I was in my early 20s. Probably, yeah, probably early 20s, maybe late teens. And I bowl very curiously. One of the things that we did today was take a bunch of junk from our back garden and take it to the local municipal waste disposal area. And I realized actually throwing crap out of the back of our car that I have remarkably good range with my arms. I'm not sure it's like all the cricket playing as a child in Australia, but I can throw misshapen shit a long way. <laughs> like ridiculously far. I don't get to do it normally. I mean, you're not normally in a circumstance where you can just literally fling crap for as far as it'll fly. But um, certainly I was impressed with the amount of Oh, misshapen crap that I could throw a great distance. That's the way I bowl. I basically hurl the ball. It's in the air for three quarters of the way. And then, I mean, I guess it's cricket. I just guess cricket has ruined me. Then the ball lands. And most of the time, also, I'm, I'm kind of six foot three. I'm kind of was at least gangly in my youth. I'm still a bit gangly. So... When I bowl, I don't have a style. And normally that meant that I was always the lowest score. Except I came back to the US with my wife in 2005. And I, my in-laws said, you've got to come back and live with us. You've got to come back and live with us. You've got to come back and live with us. There's a theme here. Various other family members have done this. And when I came back and lived with them, and my wife was with us as well, 
this is actually where I became very familiar, well, in a secondary form with your work. We stayed with them for, I don't know for how long, but one time we went to the bowling alley and I bowled a perfect game. And That's I have awesome. never seen people lose their shit like this. Oh, yeah. Because it's just probability, I think. And I just, for whatever reason, had the problem. But I have no style whatsoever. In fact, I I have funk, severe funk bowling style. <laughs> like, literally, if you videoed me bowling, people would not believe that this is a real thing. I bowled a perfect game. And my in-laws lost their shit. And really, what it made me realise was all this stuff I say about coming from Australia and how you have to be a sports star and all this stuff and how I kind of poo-poo all that, clearly, really, I should have been a sports star. Because the adulation that you get when you bowl a perfect game... And the funny thing was, I bowled a perfect game, and then they said, let's have another game, and I got my regular score. So there's nothing aside from, like, cosmic divination down onto me. That makes this thing real. But it was a surreal thing. And I've think- never been worshipped like a god. Like <laughs> when I bowled a perfect game. When you bowl, I think I have some insight on this because that's exactly how I bowl. I launch the ball straight ahead. Mm-hmm. It, it goes in the air. Mm-hmm. I just heave it, you know, and mm-hmm. it goes, uh, you know, 10, 15 feet in the air, then plops down. Mm-hmm. And then it, it always hits like sh- slightly off center just a few inches but it basically hits the front pin just just a little to the left or to the right but i bowled i think it was nine strikes that was the best i did but i always Mm. bowl horrible but um that's how i would always bowl when i would have these games where i would bowl like way high in the 200s and then i'd bowl like you know 110 Mm. you know the rest of the time Mm. but but that's yeah i i launching them up in the air like that it, i think there's less room for it to to be affected by your your horrible uh throw in the beginning you know i just sort of launch it mm. i i need to point out here my scores are typically in the mid to high 70s so i mean my games are not in any way i mean comparable in the sense that i throw the ball but the fact the stuff that you said associated with landing near a pin and this kind of stuff yeah. Landing out of the gutters is usually like, <laughs> yeah, that's like a good, that's a good thing for me. And actually when I started bowling and when I realized I had a style uh, all to my own with this thing, I realized actually that I was perfectly comfortable going to a bowling alley and doing these bizarre moves. I think mainly because for me, the game was actually seeing how far I could throw the bowling ball. <laughs> Like, the pins were incidental. And actually, I don't know. I mean, my grandmother on my father's side was part of a league. And she and this is actually, when you talk about arcade cabinets and arcade games, bowling alleys for me were just like, as you described, the boardwalk with these you know, game areas and the boardwalk. Bowling alleys for me were just, as a child at least, and teenager, what have you, were all about video games. The actual bowling thing was always kind of curious, and there'd be leagues that were bowling, usually elderly women, what have you. But yeah. for me, they were always like the cool kids were in there, you know, wearing their um, know, denim cut-off jackets and this kind of stuff, usually, occasionally, maybe. I don't know what the bands were back then. I mean, even there were folks with, like, run DMC on cut-off denim, but most of the time it was 
like Iron Maiden or something. I was like just that. gonna say that Iron Maiden jackets—they yes. had the best artwork. Yeah. yeah, they always had arcade games. That's how I ended up there. Mm. And I think my wife quilts right next door to a bowling alley that is just closing as well. You mentioned the sad things. That bowling alley has been open for I think forty or fifty years, like forever. And it's the kitchen staff actually who are the, like the longest serving members. And that's the other thing that I remember about bowling alleys in Australia, at least. I don't know if you could order beer, but there were always these strange, like, kitchens where you'd get... So cheese dogs are not a thing in Australia, but it's probably one of the few places where you could get a (laughs) cheese dog in Australia at the time. Oh, dude. How foul. Oh, it's so foul. You can heave that in the dump. Oh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I guess liquid cheese was just such a strange... I remember, actually, the company I worked for when I was about I don't know, 18, 19, the gas station, they call it a petrol station in Australia, but the gas station got a liquid cheese machine. Like, this is the newest, greatest thing from America, the liquid cheese machine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, <laughs> such delicacies. Oh, the pumping action of the hot liquid cheese. Oh, yes. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, <laughs> so disgusting. Oh, my gosh. Speaking of disgusting, you put down printer drivers as a time. Ah, yeah, well, maybe you can save the world. I can't stand printers. They never work. They are the worst. I wish someone would enforce a law that made all printers work off of one driver. I don't even know if that's possible. So... It was an interesting topic that you put down because I don't know, you clearly don't know. Probably a very good thing. When I moved to the UK, I worked for the phone company Ericsson for about four months. They paid me for six months, but the company was only open for four months. And actually one of those months they sent me back to the US to work for a startup that they purchased, as Ericsson does. Anyway, Ericsson, it was 2001. Anything associated with technology was disappearing very rapidly. And Ericsson had decided that they were going to close all their UK installations. So I went to work for a company. Am I even going to say this company's name? Well, I worked there for about three years. Right. And I might bleep the company's name out. It was called... And it was in the town that I lived in, in Wilmslow, which is just the most beautiful... I mean, the thing is that all these country towns in the UK are beautiful. Wilmslow has a particular passion for me because... There was a mathematician, one of the code breakers called Turing, uh, who was really the fundamental code breaker, who lived in Wilmslow in the last eight years of his life. You might have seen films associated with Turing. He poisoned himself with an apple because he yeah. was gay and he had, was convicted of being gay and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, what people don't say about Wilmslow is it has the highest density of eccentrics that you could ever possibly imagine. And I fitted in like a charm in Wilmslow. <laughs> there was a guy... <laughs> who had a wheelbarrow that he would walk through town and he'd wear pyjama bottoms. He tops various things, but he always wore pyjama bottoms and walked with a wheelbarrow through town. And I would have long conversations with him. There were a variety of folk that I just latched onto there. We actually went back last year because my wife and I have agreed that we've got to find, this has got to be the place that we retire because it's close to Manchester, close, very close to London by train if you get on a train. Just the sweetest town. But the company I worked for was called... They're no longer there. In their building, Uber is now there. So it's like a technology building in the centre of town. 
This is one of the strangest companies to work for. They write third-party printer drivers because <laughs> everyone hates printer drivers. And it was the strangest collection of folk. And now I have one close friend who I worked with there, who I'm still friends with and I actually met up with when I went back there. But there were a number of really tortured individuals. My manager had Tourette's. And if you're around someone that has Tourette's, it's kind of funny for the first five minutes, but he'd sit behind me, like literally looking over my shoulder, and he would cuss continuously. And then he would moan. So one of my co-workers, he'd moan his wife's name, which was a very curious thing. And he was just a really strange individual who they promoted, as you do, to being the position of manager. A variety of really dark stories come through working for this company, which is why I'm probably going to bleep them. Yeah. A year to the day after I left the company, one of my close friends and co-workers committed suicide. And uh. it was just really, really like, it was a whole series of really dark things. Another one was convicted for like a really unspeakable crime that I'm not going to describe on this podcast. And they just, it seemed to be a collection of people who through writing printer drivers were really obviously focused and relatively intelligent, but many of them had really very strange proclivities, which, you know, made it a very strange environment to work in. But I really loved the town. So it was like a catch-22. I loved living there, but this work was just really very, very curious. And a lot of it was, um, there's a company called Heidelberg that makes real... So printer drivers suck universally. doesn't matter whether you have a small desktop printer or an absolutely huge printer, they suck no matter what. So if you have an absolutely huge printer, you want printing to work, right? If printing is your job, you want it to work. And that's what this company did. We wrote software for everything from Epson, including the Epson that we currently own. I wrote printer drivers for that. To Heidelberg, which is a huge... Have you seen the film Catch Me If You Can? It's about yeah. a guy who basically... At the end, where he's printing his checks. Yeah. The huge machines he's printing them on are Heidelberg printers. Okay. They are He's literally industrial printers. Yeah, okay. And they're huge. They, they fill up buildings. Like they're what you print newspapers on and this kind of stuff. Right. So I wrote printer drivers for them and for Epsom and a variety of different companies. Obviously, <clears throat> there's no secret here, Microsoft-related printers were like heavily involved. But yeah, that was uh, three and a half years of my life writing printer drivers because printer drivers suck universally. And oh, everyone hates suck. printer drivers. <laughs> they suck so bad. Printers suck so bad. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. I constantly will try like a new printer and I'm like, and it's hysterical how little they work. Mm. You know, I'm like, it's amazing. They just can't work. They just can't always work. I've pretty universally hated printers as well. And the thing that strikes me about particularly I love Epson printers. I think they're amazing quality printers. Yeah, but that's the drivers printer I like. that Epson writes for Epson printers are really... And Epson has a business model. I'm not sure whether you get into the larger format Epson printers, but Epson has a business model where you're supposed to actually pay an Epson technician to turn up on a regular basis and service your printer. That's their model. No one ever huh. does. No. But if you have, uh, what is it, the 1500 to the 7500 series, like they're... I don't know. They print formats up to probably 17 inches. If you have one of those, they're like the first entry for Epson to actually get their technicians and they're supposed to come annually and service them. And they have long, 
pipes which fill up with ink and a variety of other things. Like they're just designed to make these companies just a little bit extra money every so often, fixing them, you know, maintaining this kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so unbelievably frustrating. But now I'm a civilian. Now I don't actually write printer driver software. I don't know. The tales I could tell. It's a bit like I spent 18 months with Steve Wozniak and I can't talk about any of that time. Like all of that time is completely under wraps. You hear snippets. People that have listened to literally, I've got this guy in Australia who's listened to every single podcast and I met him by chance when I was last in Australia. And he had pieced together over seven years, two and a half Wozniak stories through that time. But I'm probably under complete embargo to tell any story associated with this. The printer drivers, uh, similarly, <laughs> I can't talk about it because, firstly, you wouldn't believe it. But secondly, it's it's a bit like some arcane thing, like some detailed thing that it's just better never told. Yeah, probably, because it's horrible to experience. <laughs> They're so bad. But I love printing. Mm. Printing is great. While but- I was there... I printed more posters and I print posters for friends because we have these huge format printers. So for example, at the time I was commissioning a figure painter to paint figures and he'd take really detailed photos and I print out these photos and send them to the miniature manufacturers and say, these are how good your figures look now painted with modern painting techniques. And each figure, as you know, roughly an inch tall, printed out to 36 inches printed, amazing resolution, beautiful, crisp photos. Oh, my buddy worked at a um, architect firm. This is like 15 years ago. But he was like, dude, we have the biggest printers. And if I stay late after work, no one's around. So I took pictures of all of us and uh, all our friends. And we had life-size cutouts, you know. He'd be running them off. He'd be like, that's going to take like two hours to print this. <laughs> he would get these print-offs going. Oh, it's great, though. I mean, mm. pr- printing's so awesome. For me, it was early in the morning. Because I lived in the town, I'd just walk into work early and print off, you know, two, three posters. Or on weekends. And oh, none yeah. of the people lived in the town, except the one guy who committed suicide. But none of the other guys lived in the town. So I'd be there with the one guy. And I'd play Age of Empires. That was my game back in the day. Yeah. And print. And, yeah. It's just amazing to have access to large format print. Yeah, I'll say that's awesome. One of the topics that I put out there based on printer drivers. At the time, I wrote some of my printer drivers in Xcode. You've mentioned Xcode periodically. I downloaded a couple of your, in fact, all three of your iBook offerings recently because I wanted to talk a little bit about the the Woody Wolf at some stage. Oh, they're still there? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how to get to them. With QuickTime <laughs> movies attached and everything. Oh, so, I forgot about that. For me... I mean, probably almost everything I do at work, that's not necessarily true, but Xcode is a big part of what I do in my day-to-day work professionally. But it also was one of the reasons that Apple started using my Noble Ape software was at the time prior to Xcode, there were three different compilers that would work on the Mac, all of them really pretty horrible, although Code Warrior was kind of partial to. But the thought that you have used Xcode strikes me as really, I mean, for me, Xcode is both my work, but also like Noble Ape. I have various other games that I've written in Xcode. What's your experience with Xcode? It, well, I have no background in coding or programming, but 
of course you always want to know it, you know, but I have nothing, you know, absolutely nothing. And, uh, you know, so when Apple comes out with like, um, you know, we used to edit with two VCRs hooked up. So then mm. uh, iMovie and GarageBand and all that come out. And, um, so then you can edit and, and you can make your own music. So it, you know, it did worlds for me. And then, then they have Xcode and it's like, wow, well, this is great. You know, and, and iWeb too, you know, cause mm. I didn't know how to code for websites, but you know, that was like, I can make my own website. This is great. Cause who doesn't want to make their own stuff, you know? And, uh, so then they had Xcode and I was like, well, this is awesome. I've always wanted to like, I don't know, learn how to code, but I didn't really learn how to code, but I wanted to, um, get my own, uh, I wanted to make an app, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I just started playing around with that. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, so I was like, well, let's just see what I can do with this. Um, I can't do much. When I made Cattlebag, they won't, like, Apple was really difficult to just go and say, hey, I want to put my, my movie, I'm this guy who's nothing, and I want to just put my movie in, make it available on iTunes. You got to go through a distributor, you know, they're not just going to let me do it. So I didn't want to go through a distributor. I don't want to give any, any rights of it away. So I said, well, that's fine. No one has to see it. And, um, but then I, I thought, well, what if I turn it into an app? Cause I saw other people made apps that were basically nothing, you know, mm -hmm. and even video clip apps. And mm -hmm. so I did, I went in and I turned it into, a, um, I, t I turned it into an app. I turned Cattlebag into an app and basically all it was, was all the video, all the different skits. And that, that was the app. You could just click on a button. You could watch them all at once. And there was like a little write up of each thing and stuff, um, of each skit. But, it worked. I ported it. I built it out to all my devices, iPad and, and, uh, I had, it was an iPod touch then cause I still had a flip phone <laughs> and, uh, but it worked and, and, um, but they, they wouldn't take it. They rejected it. And I still have the letter that they gave me. Um, I printed it out, but I was like, Oh, you scumbags. Why didn't you take it? You know, but I was like, this is still cool that they gave me the ability to even do that. Um, but they said, you know, it has to be more than just a, a video that plays. It has to have some special features. And I said, well, it took me forever to get just to get basically a quick time movie that plays after you push a button. You mm. know, I'm always intrigued by it. So I haven't messed with it for a while, but I, I don't know. I'm always I'm sort of like I, I, I'd rather do it myself and and not finish it than have somebody else do it. You know, certainly. Yeah. But um. Yeah, I like it. Now, it's it's so cool that you know it. I'm like, oh, dude, it's so awesome. It's funny because my, my job, for folks who are interested, I work at Netflix. I work on their iOS app and Apple TV and these kind of things. And Xcode's precursor I used at the printer company as well, which was called, I think, Project Builder. But I'm also, because of the Noble Ape usage, I've known people that have worked on Xcode and it's just a really interesting community because Xcode is what you want to make out of it. So you can write flight simulators and a bunch of different graphics things and obviously games. And, you know, there are so many curious apps out there, maybe slightly more than just QuickTime files. The things that I found of yours were iBooks, which oh, were yeah. basically, they were books with QuickTime movies built into it. I have somewhere, I have the, the Cattlebag DVD when I ordered it, was actually sent to my address in the UK. There was some screw up with PayPal. 
And the people who lived in the house we lived in, the kid was a fan of your work. So they opened it up. The kid watched the DVD. He's like, cool, how did I get this? And then they realized, oh, it was sent to, you know, some guy previously. They put my name into Google, found my name, and then I got the Cattlebag DVD sent back with a written oh. nice letter saying, thank you very much. This was a great DVD. You know, it was f- cool that you lived here once and this kind of stuff. So for me, uh, Cattlebag was that experience. And I don't even know, I guess... There was hot dog casserole or a bunch of things that you did around that time. Was it hot dog casserole or sausage casserole? Hot dog. Oh, uh, that was Chris Rab. Yeah, yeah, Chris. But you Chris really- did hot dog. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Anything Chris does, I'll I'll help yeah. him out with. Um, and uh, so I don't know how I found out about. It must. It was after Gamecaster though. I can't work out the chronology. When did Gamecaster? Come? They're around the same time. Yeah. Uh, so maybe yeah. I don't know which I heard of first. Probably anyway. But that was the story of Cattlebag for me was it went to the UK first, was watched and enjoyed and then sent on to me. And I thought that was cool. I don't know if it was enjoyed or even watched, but uh, the iBooks, <laughs> that was sort of the workaround because mm. they'll let you in the iBook store as an independent. Uh, so mm. I said, well, they let video play in an iBook. So I said, well, no one's really going to see this, but uh, I'll I'll do it just to see. I don't know. I just like what they come up with, and it allows someone like me that can't really do anything to mm. to do it on my own. So I said, "Well, let's just see if I can get in there." And I, the Woody Wolf thing, I had made like forever ago. I actually just mm. made a comic book and printed it out and left it at the cabin in Vermont that we would all go to. And then mm. I said, "Well, let me go back and and put that all together and just throw it in there for the heck of it, you know." But um, yeah, I don't know. Xcode's always sort of that mystery to me. <laughs> Maybe if I took the time to learn it, I- I'd get further along. The trick with Xcode is to find people that have done something like what you want to do. Then you get their code, which is one of the things with open source. You go to, you know, GitHub or one of the open source repositories, or you just search online, open source, and then put in the words of what you're interested in doing. And you'll find an example of it. Sometimes it'll be old. It'll typically require some form of hacking. That's but, what uh, I did. Yeah. Uh, I think it's Stack Overflow. Is that the yep. website? Yep. Yeah, that's. I did everything. And I was like, these people are so nice, man. I remember one guy was like writing back to me, and he's like, I got to go have dinner, but I'll be back in a few hours. I was like, this is unreal. Like this yes. is like the first time I ever wrote on here. I was like, ah, that's like so. Thank you to Stack Overflow because that I would just literally. It's like it's not like I could type code. I would copy and paste, and um, and and that's also where I found um. Uh, like one of the things I wanted to do was have it. So since kettlebags, all skits, I wanted to have it. So if you played the skits, uh, like I was a big fan of like Kentucky fried movie mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I'd like it to play, but I'm like, I wish I could just have it playing all the time. So it didn't eventually stop and go to the DVD menu. I hate when they mm-hmm. go DVDs would go back to the menu and just play mm-hmm. that annoying loop. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wanted to have some sort of code written in there where it would just, uh, randomly, play all the chapters so that that's in the dvd as well Mm. um so i was like oh so you could put it on at a party in the background and i'm sure everyone will leave but it'll infinitely play and it should just keep playing it shouldn't it shouldn't stop (laughs) so uh but that's again stack overflow uh helped with that yes So, so in my notes i had some logical trajectory between forts made up words and the woody wolf because certainly the woody wolf as a character is a kind of continuation of 
And this for me actually, and obviously art was part of, part of your earlier filmings as well, the mad scientist stuff and this kind of thing. What happens to the Woody Wolf now he's kind of middle aged with kids, kind of graying beard, this kind of stuff. I mean, does this character have a trajectory that can map on to like the contemporary part of Rake's life? No. <laughs> Not at all. He's, he's frozen killed he's frozen in that one one paper printout up in the cabin in Vermont. Okay. Like the mosquito in the sap of Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> that, oh, that was just like a one-time thing. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't think I will ever expand on that. <laughs> alas, alas. Because I yeah. can just see the trajectory of, you know, potentially the Woody will settling down, having like wolf mutant cub creatures and this kind of stuff. So, interesting. I guess when you create imaginary worlds, be it Schmuck West, Woody Wolf, you know, what have you. I guess I've always thought, I've always felt responsible, really, particularly on anything that I've put out as much as possible, to, like, continue on the narrative trajectory. For a period of time, I was very heavily involved with No Blape. I'm kind of, I still maintain it. I still get occasional emails about it. It's not like two and a half hours a day kind of work, which it used to be. And through that period of time, people would always say, well, you know, what happens when you turn off the computer or when you kill the noble apes or this kind of stuff? I always felt responsible for my creations to have like a continuing life, which I've talked to, I've talked to various authors and things like that about as well. But it's interesting that you feel very compartmentalized. These characters exist for a very particular point of time. They don't continue on. There's no future possibilities here. It's well, no, you know, I, it, it would. I always liked the characters. Like, I always drew comic books. I still have them all. Even in high school, I would draw them. Um, and they're all they're all still here, <laughs> you know. But um, I never – I did plan on doing more. I just never did, you know. But, yeah, <laughs> some of the characters in there, like Killer Arm and Killer Leg, I guess I felt more of an attachment to. Because <laughs> I think I've been drawing them since like 1987. I would draw this comic mm. of them, you know. <laughs> mm. Yeah, the Roman guard, the elements of history that struck me in some of your comics, well, and obviously Cattlebag represents small elements of that. But yeah, I could certainly sense there was a much longer narrative uh, behind the stuff. Yeah, there is uh, some of it. Some of it's, I guess, loosely connected, but who <laughs> knows where it all ends up. I wanted to conclude with Vietnam film. This oh, has th been... Yes, okay, cool. This has been a topic that I... When you mentioned that your mother did not respond to the notion that I had sent you Vietnam-era rations because her brother had been in Vietnam, these kind of things... Vietnam is so important on so many different levels in the American psyche, and capturing it on film and Vietnam-era films for me... Very fascinating. Rap about this a little bit. It's funny if I, uh, you know, in like Platoon. I'm sure you've seen Platoon. It's funny when I look at Platoon, I thought, "Wow, that was such a cool movie." And then <laughs> once I saw like Full Metal Jacket, I was like, "God, Platoon sucks." <laughs> I just I was, what was I thinking? This is like just this is horrible. And uh, I don't know. I always sort of I watch Full Metal Jacket quite a bit. I really oh, like. Yeah. It. yeah, oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. And uh, I, I don't, there's not, there's really no other, I don't know, what other movie do you like? I don't like Apocalypse Now. No, I'm not proud of that. 
I'm not into that at all. Uh, I, I like, so I have a theory about the Vietnam movie as a genre. Platoon, I agree. A Platoon is basically a war game. I mean, when I watch Platoon, I imagine them as little lead figures moving through the combat and the way in which the combat is filmed and these kind of things is very kind of war game stylistic, but not really like for me, probably on par. And really with both these films, it's the last 15 minutes, Full Metal Jacket and The Deer Hunter. And I think The Deer Hunter for a period of time was really difficult to get. You could only get it on obscure. They had one DVD press of it. Now you can get it on iTunes and I think it's slightly easier to get. But for me, The Deer Hunter, and there's another film called Little Dieter Needs to Fly, which was remade, this is an interview with the actual guy, but was remade as a movie called Rescue Dawn, which is not as good as Little Dieter Needs to Fly. Are you familiar with Werner Herzog films? He also made Grizzly Man and a bunch of other movies. Yeah. Yeah. He has his own style. You either love it or you hate it. I'm, I'm more in the, I appreciate his films on a different level. But for me, yes, Full Metal Jacket without question. But really, it's just the last 15 minutes of Full Metal Jacket. And similarly, the last 15 minutes of The Deer Hunter. And I have a theory that these movies are long and tend to be long to try and remind the audience or that they need to get a, like a human connection with the characters. And that's what The Deer Hunter is and Full Metal Jacket is it's a very long film just to get the audience into the mindset. And P- Platoon has elements of this as well, that these are humans that are about to go through really horrific experiences. And I think it's a folly associated with film as a genre that you can't assume an audience all sitting down at the same time will pick up with characters emotionally as is needed to be the case in these Vietnam films. What say you? Yeah. I, how can I disagree? You know, there are um, those two films. Deer Hunter is good, too. You know, my friends, just real quick, they the, one time we were in Scranton, PA. Mm-hmm. And somebody told me that they knew I liked the Deer Hunter. And they said, you know, the Deer Hunter is filmed around here. And I said, oh, I think I heard that, you know. And so we had like a break. And uh, my lunch break, I, I went and I said, I'm going to walk around town just to, just to take it all in. And then when I got back, they said, you know, scenes of the deer hunter you're thinking of are really shot outside of Pittsburgh. Yes. <laughs> I said, oh, you scumbags. They were fucking with you. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah I think so, definitely. Uh, I like the whole, both of them, uh, the entire movie. You know, I do like the last 15 minutes, of course, mm. but I like the, um, the whole movie as well. I have a relatively close friend who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. For me, my parents met at an anti-war concert, a Bob Dylan concert, and the Vietnam War was just so central to my upbringing. And coming to the US has enabled me to know a number of Vietnam veterans very closely, including this gentleman. I've talked to this fellow associated with his time as a prisoner of war in Vietnam, and in particular, the torture aspects of it. And what interests me about these films, and The Deer Hunter in particular, is that it doesn't sugarcoat. I mean, they're not badly brutalized. This guy had his eye socket broken by the butt of an AK-47. So the element of torture that these films don't cover is really associated with the injuries that these prisoners of war sustained over long periods of time. Obviously, John McCain, um, you know, it's one of those. But yeah, it's such a fascinating period of time in American culture. And it's such a curious 
topic in film. I don't really have much more to say about this. I mean, your mother's response seems to indicate that this is a, you know, this has an element in your family as well, right? Yeah, I guess a, a, a bit. No one ever talks about it. But uh, you know what else? You know what I, I wanted to say is that, like, it's funny that people like, you know, I was a kid watching Platoon. But I, I always thought, like, this movie sucks, dude. <laughs> and I was like, it's cool as a movie. But to make, to try to make it seem like it's – I think didn't want Platoon win, win an Academy Award for something? You need to put it in the context of the time it was made. I feel this way about Rescue Dawn as well. Rescue Dawn is very much a late 2000s movie. Yeah. Platoon is very much, I think it's a late 80s movie, maybe mid-80s yeah. movie. And in that context, and I mean, this is a series of really bad acting circumstances. Yeah, that's what it is. But I liked uh, it at the time. <laughs> and looking back on it, I mean, the topic is serious. And the topic is, but the acting around it, and I think, I mean, they, they took risks with the actors that they cast in this film. And some of it is just ridiculous. I mean, the notion of the camps associated with the dope smokers and the liquor drinkers, and it's just a very strange film. But in terms of the military aspects of it, like the units and this kind of stuff, I don't know. It's just every time I watch it, it makes me want to play war games because that's basically the mentality of the film, that you get a very much a kind of platoon level action. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, I don't know. I'm always like, geez, what were the guys who made this thinking? It just seems like they just did whatever they wanted, kind of. I don't know. I, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the deer hunter is very close to the actual conflict, and I think Full Metal Jacket is enough time where... I mean, Full Metal Jacket's almost satire on a number of levels. It has it crosses so many boundaries between the you know, humorous buffet humorous buffet kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, which I think is, you know, well noted. The Deer Hunter, I think, is a really dark film. And it's a film that I find still to this day just poignantly disturbing associated with just shattered human psychologies associated with war. Like, just human psychologies that had no means of dealing with the experiences that they go through and really leave them in circumstances where... And to be frank, this is happening to this day. I mean, we're engaged currently in wars that leave people in a similar state. So, yeah, very strange. Very strange. Yeah, definitely. But both are awesome movies. Yes, without question. Rambo 4 is an awesome movie, which is just called Rambo. I think we talked about this before, but it's just, uh, uh, it's so awesome. You know, my friend Lyndon, I saw it in the theater, and I just want to tell you this. If you haven't seen The Last Rambo, uh, I told Lyndon this because he was loving it. And I said, look, just, just get through the first part. You know, you're getting to like the last 40 minutes or last half hour, last 45 minutes, whatever it is. And I stopped, I stopped the movie. I had already seen it. And I said, listen, Lennon sitting on the couch. I said, look at me. And he looks at me. I said, everything you ever wanted from Rambo, everything that you selfishly want Rambo to do to the enemy, everything that you can possibly imagine and more is about to happen over the next 45 minutes. I was like, so just, Remember, this is the first time you're going to see it. So just sit still and enjoy it because it is awesome. 
<laughs> and then I hit play. Uh, I, I was watching his face the whole time, and I was like, it is so awesome. <laughs> it's so ridiculously awesome. But he was flipping out, and I just thought, I was like, oh, yes, Stallone, you did it. You just went absolutely wild. I was like, Rambo 4, oh, dude, it's so awesome. Do you, I mean, I find myself frequently editing films, like literally starting watching at a point where I start want to start to watch and stop watching at a point where I want to stop watching. Like, I think there are a number of modern films, what's it called? War Dogs, which is a recent movie. Oh, yeah, I saw I, that. I got it on iTunes. I missed the last 15 minutes every time. I just thought this movie's over. I don't need to see... I didn't watch the end. And then my wife sat down and watched it with me. And I'm like, what? what's this bit of a movie? I've never seen this bit of a movie before. Because <laughs> literally, I thought the movie was over. I just turned it off. I didn't even care the last 15 minutes. So... I find myself frequently doing that anyway to films like, oh, the first hour's garbage. I'll just fast forward to the first hour. Start oh, I constantly do that. Yeah. I, oh, yeah, I can't. <laughs> yeah, especially with the Apple TV. I'm just like zip through the timeline mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, oh yeah. let's go. Let's get the show on the road here. Yeah. <laughs> Full Metal Jacket's like that for me. I mean, you know, all the boot camp stuff is cinematic and what have you, but my view is it starts when they get to Vietnam. The first it's fun. Year, yeah. It's like two films, right? Yeah. Well, I actually, when I was younger, I watched it and I wasn't that into it, you know, and uh, I had seen it several times and I never got past boot camp because I thought that oh, was, the, I thought that was the end thing. and I just, same I thing. went about my business and yeah. then like years later, I was like, oh my God, I didn't know the movie kept going. And that's like, Oh man, this is unbelievable because, oh man. Um, but you know, that was, that was years ago, but yeah, now yeah. I, now I, I love it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've come to a natural conclusion for this evening. I've got a video to edit still this evening, plus a bunch of other stuff that I've got to do this evening. And I don't know how heavily medicated you are, but please take some extra meds for me. And, uh, <laughs> We will reconvene. More people have found out about this thing since you tweeted it about six, seven hours ago now. So thank you for doing that. Oh, yeah. You know what? I had to go in and, like, learn social media because I don't do it at all. So I was mm. like, ugh. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I just want to play with video and uh, yeah. action figures. So I was like, oh, I'll go in and, and do this. And uh, and it's fun. I'm actually kind of liking it. So I'm like, yeah, all right, cool. Yeah, so... Yes. um. Uh, Yes, yes. I think I'm going to go listen to your remix again. Very good. And maybe by the time you conclude listening to the remix, I will have the video out. But I'm going to have to do voiceover for it because the... Uh, the Well, give us a little bit of the re- of that. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I just might use the uh, the Garden State Killers version because the Garden State Killers version is, is so much better. But uh, no, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll do the guns. I don't know. I'm, I'm in two minds about what I do with gun set kills. But the one thing I will do is I will find my violin public enemy contract on the world love jam. Now I play contract on the world. I think at half speed with the violin over the top of that. And I'll find that and definitely put it at the end of this audio. A reward for all. Definitely. Uh, a pleasure nothing, like the re- <laughs> nothing like the reward of my uh, ATST. Oh man. Dude, I picked oh, up man, look, right. when I found out how much that thing cost, I picked up one for myself as well. And I'm embarrassed to say it remains in the same Disney bag somewhere near the attic 
And I probably should open it and build my own. Dude, this thing shoots these plastic missiles out. Oh, yeah. And I just got my daughter her first Happy Meal, and she got the... It's like Nintendo characters, you know, Mario Kart. <laughs> they got... uh, She got the Bowser that shoots out the... It's like the same exact rocket that shoots out. I'm going to try to see if this fits in Bowser's little rocket holder thing. We're but, at the uh, bug point, Brandon. I've got to sign out. I'm probably signing oh, out already. Oh, I'll talk to you soon. It's going. Cheers. Take care. Bye.